Welcome to Radar Contact by Fox ATM, the podcast for the air traffic management community, bringing global ATM on your radar. You're identified. You don't have to be a large company to be successful in ATM. That's something I've always been believing in. I mean, at Fox ATM, we are seven of us. And I always had a sweet spot for smaller companies that offer different alternatives to what the bigger one have. And today, this is something we will address. My name is Vincent Lambercy. This is an episode of the Radar Contact podcast. And today, my guest is uh, Julian Sube, who is one of the co-founders of a company called Skysquitter, uh, which operates an ADSB network across Europe, but we will come that in a second. Uh, Julian, welcome. Thank you for being our guest. Can you please start by introducing yourself, your career, and tell us what brought you so far? Yes, uh, thank you. Thank you, Vincent. Thank you for the invitation. And I'm um, Happy to be here. Thanks for the intro. Yeah, my name is Julian Zube, originally from the uh, Frankfurt area in, in Germany, and I'm one of the, the three co-founders of the company Skysquitter. Just a few um, facts to my to my background. Originally, I'm an uh, electronic engineer with some additional qualification in, in business administration. I also fly myself, so I hold a private pilot license. I have been passionate about aviation, actually, since... Um, yeah, since being being a kid. To my career, I started off my career as a as a young project engineer in in airfield systems. I did planning of electrical systems like airfield lighting, navigation aids, aircraft docking systems, and and so on. And I actually still work in this field as as a freelancing engineer and consultant when when I have the time. But um, actually, I, I don't have that much time because in 2017, I had the privilege to found an, an own company named named Skyscooter with two friends of mine, which were also are actually experienced professionals from from the ATC and ATM industry. The idea was actually to bring together the individual know how of of everyone involved. Yeah, let's let's be honest here. Also, to do some fun stuff uh, with focus on on air traffic surveillance i have to add we we are also licensed amateur radio operators so it's even more more linked to to our personal personal interest since then we worked in several projects related to to this field for example we did um, develop software for encoding and decoding several radar data streams and data formats we supported the certification of commercial adsb receivers we were also part of, of several research projects dealing with radar data analysis and, let's say, the the innovative use of, of Mode-S data. Yeah, on top of that, we do also consulting and we provide live data streams for several kinds of applications. And yeah, as you as you already mentioned in the intro, um, we are also operating an own ADSB Mode-S uh, receiving network. Maybe just to add some... Um, Examples for, for our customers, uh, they're ranging from big academic institutions and universities to uh, ANSPs and also smaller companies within, within the aviation industry, all with a focus on, on surveillance. Okay, thank you for the, the intro. You covered a lot of things already that we need to, to dig into one by one. Let us start with the, the core of the, the company. So basically, you do something which is operating that network of ADSB receivers across Europe. Basically, same thing as FlightRadar, FlightAware, and OpenSky, to just name a few. But there are a few core differences, and, and your approach is, is slightly different. How do you go with operating your network? What, what makes you different from others? 
Yeah, there's there are lots of great networks out there. Of course, we don't want to be the, the 20th version of the ADSB crowdsourced network. I think I have to to go a little bit back in time to explain the idea of this of this network. Actually, we came up with this idea during a time when we were part of a research project dealing with the innovative use of, of mode S, of raw mode S data, where we developed algorithms for turbulence estimation and also for calculation of other meteorological parameters out of transponder data. We were in need of, of high quality and precise time-stamped raw mode S data, since this was what this is, um, a real-time application. And yeah, we worked with with several data sets from from other networks, and then we decided let's let's just put up an own receiver. Um, we can control, which um, is completely in our hands. And that was that was just the beginning of this network. Over a time period of let's say two three years, this idea evolved, and um, nowadays we are operating more than fifty receivers throughout Europe. Initially, just to give us a good European picture of uh, high altitude winds. That was just the beginning of this idea. And um, speaking of differences, um, the main difference is that we are not crowdsourced like, like the other bigger, great networks. Um, so we own all the hardware. We know all the antenna sites. We did the planning um, of the antenna sites by ourselves. And the data is streamed via a secure VPN um, to our backend. So it's a complete closed system just in, in our hands. Yeah, we have full control over it. Another thing is we have um, precise GNSS time synchronization, of course, throughout the, the whole network. And we have monitoring system for all the receiver. There's no crowdsourcing involved in at all. And this is, this is the main difference because... Well, crowdsourced networks, they have big advantages, of course, over our idea when it comes to, to coverage. We don't want to, to beat the coverage of, of any of those of those networks, of course. This is not our goal. But there are also some, some disadvantages, some differences, because we've been working with the data from different big networks. And we know that there's problems every now and then with data quality, like precise timestamps which are really crucial if you're um, not only looking looking at the map or doing historical data analysis, but really running a real-time or near real-time application using the raw surveillance data. So we're not dealing with, let's say, faulty receivers, laggy networks, uh, faulty timestamps, jamming attacks, for example. Jamming attacks are a big issue in every crowdsourced application, of course. And for us in our application, this really made made a difference. And um, yeah, we also have some some customers, obviously thinking thinking the same. And since the network is completely in our hands, we provide coverage and even complete closed systems on customer requirements, like providing data of specific, let's say, airfields, airspaces, or just different parts of of the world where additional and reliable coverage is is needed and is um, crucial for a project. And we can adjust and integrate into existing systems. So I'd say we're really just aiming towards uh, the B2B and more professional applications here, uh, where there's some kind of custom solution and deeper knowledge is, is needed. And well, we are completely independent of any strict business model or fixed contracts. And I think that... Um, yeah, sets us apart from from the other networks. The technical person in me wants to dig a bit deeper because I know these timestamping issues can be a massive problem in 
in timestamping regarding crowdsource networks. But I think another issue can be the type of hardware they use, because if you look at some of those other networks, some are fed by, to put it a bit aggressively, $30 or 30 euros receivers. Um, and this can also lead to some kind of issues. So I imagine you having complete hands over the network, the antennas, the receivers and everything is probably helping you basically not having some problems that the other networks have, right? Yeah, that is true, obviously. And during our time um, experimenting with different receivers and also antenna systems, um, which is actually something we did before starting the company. So as I mentioned, it's um, it's all linked closely linked to our personal interests and we really were able to choose the best hardware for this for this purpose and we're not using like consumer hardware which is actually not really suitable for a 24/7 operation so our receivers they're certified for 24/7 um yeah uh, 24/7 operation and we have years of experience dealing with with those with those receivers we tried different gps antennas we tried uh, several different receiving setups and now we ended up with um with a good overview uh what actually works and and what not and yeah now we're pretty confident that we can ensure best data quality possible i also imagine you pick up the sites where you put your antennas because you don't have so many antennas compared to maybe larger networks and i mean i, I know that firsthand because uh, Fox ATM provides SkyScooter with a site in Vilnius. So I, I know the process a bit. Um, can you tell us a bit more about what kind of sites you after? How do you pick up the places where you put your antennas? Because I assume it's just not on everybody's balcony, right? Yeah, that's that's true. And um, it's also a matter of of the the yeah costs because we own the hardware. And when we deploy a new antenna site, of course, we like it to be with a great view to, to all directions, with a clear view to, to the horizon, with um, a stable internet connection. Sometimes we, we use a UPS for power supply. So this is something we consider with, with, every, with every antenna site. And those are our requirements. So we're not putting up antennas on, on balcony just because we don't have thousands of, of receivers. So we go more after quality than, than quantity. And um, since we were looking mainly at the upper airspace at first, we liked our receivers to cover, yeah, a huge, or let's say the best possible amount of, of, the, of the airspace. And this is also a challenge if you have very good antenna sites, the, the mode S message rate is, is really, really high. So for example, um, some of our sites, they do have a, message rate of more than three and a half thousand mode s messages decoded every second i think most of your listeners uh, who dealt with adsb in general they try to receive signals with a with the adsb dongle with those little sdr dongles for example and the best we ever the best result we ever achieved with those little dongles is around thousand maybe thousand three hundred messages a second and then they're they're on, on, on the limit. Um, so this is also something to to consider if you're operating good good antenna sites that um, your hardware has to be capable of uh, providing this high message rates and decoding properly. So you mentioned you cover mostly upper airspace. I mean, the limited number of receivers means you won't see aircraft on the ground at every airport and airfield like some other networks can offer. 
Um, what is your coverage for now? Because we say Europe, but Europe tends to be a fuzzy thing depending which kind of Europe you are talking about. So what is your coverage from now on? Are there holes where you'd like to have new receivers put in operation? Um, speaking of the upper airspace, our coverage is almost complete Europe. I think we have some some gaps in, in Norway, northern Norway, areas where there's not that much traffic, to be honest. Also, um, the direction of Turkey, there's some some holes, but looking at the, the upper airspace, we're pretty well covered there. The reason, maybe I'd like to, to add that, uh, the reason why we were looking at the upper airspace was to get this, this picture of the wind situation over Europe. And with the wind situation, we are looking at the cruise altitudes, basically. And of course, it's it's way easier to establish coverage in high altitudes than it is to establish ground coverage everywhere. Um, that's it's obviously um, easier. Um, with the deployment of the receivers, we already um, see that we cover the main airports because if there's a chance to be near to an airport in a good high-quality antenna site, uh, you have both. You have the high altitudes and you also have the, the lower altitudes, maybe also ground traffic. So we try to address that. But of course, there also has to be a use case. So we are not just putting up receivers with for simply no specific reason. We try to um, expand wisely where there's a, there's an actual use case. Okay, so if some listeners in Turkey have professional sites with nice availability and a nice view of the horizon, are you open to requests? Of course, of course. We're not open, not only open to requests, we're also open to to connect to to anyone who's interested of course who knows maybe some some of our listeners in in the area can can join and, and help you obviously you are operating the network you can provide the live positions the data and everything but i guess with your expertise you can do much more than that so what extra can you offer um yeah speaking of live positions maybe it's interesting to know that um Live positions are really just a small part of, of mode S in general. Um, it's only ADSB, which is providing any kind of like 3D or 4D position information. And um, most people don't know that ADSB, which is obviously just a part of mode S, um, to be specific, it is the downlink from it um, 17 of mode S. It only makes up around, let's say, it, it depends on where you are, of course, but let's say not more than 20% of all modes messages. So there's much more information in the air that can be decoded and is, is interesting. Uh, for example, TCAS, the whole um, TCAS system, um, avionics information, like deep insights into the technical parameters of a flight. Um, that is important to know. So there's there's so so many information you can get out of MODES, and we can provide all, all of them. Um, we can also do precise uh, multilateration system to provide position of targets, which are actually not ADSB equipped. And actually, we're deploying complete MLAT installations on, on customer requirements for that. So we just recently had a new installation in, in Southwest Germany uh, for this reason. And well, as I, as I already mentioned, uh, we also do data processing and calculate metadata out of it. So we provide live weather information like the wind speed and direction, barometric pressure, turbulence information, and also temperature. 
We backtested all those algorithms with real aircraft, with weather models, and also with research aircraft. Developed several algorithms for, let's say, bias correction and quality control in, in, in general. So uh, from our perspective and from the feedback we, we get, this data can be actually very useful for ATC and ATM applications and for further research. Um, so this is something we can we can provide. There's AMDA right now. Maybe some, some of your listeners um, heard of, of AMDA, which is also providing weather information, but it's a completely cooperational system. So aircraft have to be equipped with AMDA equipment, of course. They have to be like part of the game. And uh, in our case, there's no need of any additional onboard equipment because we're just listening to mode S data. So we basically use aircraft as sensors without them knowing it. This makes it, from our perspective, and very interesting, a new data source. And we can provide this data from the existing network. We can also provide custom coverage or completely closed systems for, for that case. I would have to, to check for, for data quality, but in general, we can also supply, we could also apply those algorithms to existing data streams of other sources. So it has not to be from from our network, but it has to be high quality raw data to get uh, to get good results. You participate in some research projects in the past, and I think you are still active in in that field. Is that pure ATM research, or is it more more general? Can you tell us a bit more about that? Most of our research projects were just ATM in general, dealing with surveillance data. But uh, we also had one one um, little bit different projects where we put up radio sons to monitor the frequency spectrum from the stratosphere, which was a very interesting, a little bit different project because we like to do some some hardware development as well. I, I wouldn't say it was a it was a was a project by accident, but it was a great opportunity for us to do to do something something special. But but most of the other projects were ATM related, yeah. I like project by accident. That's something we know pretty well. And to be honest, and I don't know if you agree on that, but quite often the projects by accident, as you call them, are the best one and the funnier one, right? That's true. That's true. So you have a lot of experience and expertise within Skyscreeter. So you provide data, you take part in research projects, but you also have um, a consulting part of the company. Can you tell us a bit of uh, what you have been doing in that, that area and how you can help other companies achieve their goals? Um, yeah, that's uh, that's true. Actually, one of the reasons why we started the company was um, providing consulting services because we think that we we offer a quite unique combination of of know how. We have the part of an active air traffic controller and software developer in in the the founding team. Uh, we got a data scientist working in the ATM industry for over fifteen years. So that's that's the the founding team, and of course myself. And I think it makes up an interesting team. Um, we know what can be done with surveillance data and um, what cannot be done. And we confidently call ourselves the, the Mode S experts. So, of course, we like to support with that know-how in all kinds of projects where this might be valuable um, as consultants and, and um, developers. So uh, we did software development uh, re related to, to Mode S. Um, as I mentioned in the beginning, we help with uh, certification processes and um, yeah, we open to, to many, many more. So that's always interesting for us also to learn more about 
the needs of the industry and uh, to see if we can add some some value. What kind of customers or project are you looking just after what you've said? Because with that kind of skills, you can go directly to an ANSP, you can go to research institutions, but sometimes it's not easy to work with the big guys. So are you more looking for smaller projects and smaller teams or are you open for everything? Of course, we are open to 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 any customer and project uh, where our know-how and services are valuable. We'd also like to be involved in, in another research project because we think that um, with our industry know-how and from our other professional careers, we can always bring some, some good input. But we know that the, the research projects are sometimes a bit bit difficult. Yeah, um, it's it's a high administrative effort, to be honest, for, for a small company. We always enjoy to, to hop in for some kind of subcontracting, doing our work and doing what we can what we can do do best. Uh, we would also like to expand our activities abroad. So aviation is is a very international industry, and to focus just on the the German speaking areas can be yeah. I I wouldn't say boring, but maybe it's time for for also something new um, in in other countries. And of course, other than that, our focus is to find customers or partners to continue our work with our live meteorological data. Uh, since we finished the, the research project recently, we're now looking to bring this idea into some kind of operational application or have a corporation to find out how it can work in an operational application. And therefore, we are we are targeting at um, ANSPs, of course, um, airlines, airline suppliers, and also meteorological institutions, basically everywhere where live weather information from, from the airspace is interesting. Because I think we all know that weather is one of the most important factors in aviation, uh, reducing capacity, causing delays and more emissions. So we are confident that this new data source can be a great addition to, to existing systems. Yeah, that's why we like to find new partners and projects regarding that, or just to have a good discussion, of course. I'd like to take a step back here and come back to what I said in the introduction, that there is no need to be a large company to be successful or do interesting things in, in ATM. What is your own experience being a small company active in the domain? I think you could fill a whole podcast with this question, to be honest. <laughs> I know, I know. It's it's not easy. And I mean, I'm in the same position running Fox ATM for five and a half years now. I struggle with that every day, but it's always nice to have the opinion of others. Yeah, I, I mean, I can only speak for, for ourselves and not for any other small company, but... I guess some some basic things are the same for for most of the the active uh, companies. I think first of all, there's a big difference between the small company, in that case, Skyscooter, and most of the customers because uh, we are small, we are flexible, fast most of the time. Uh, we don't have any some kind of compliance board, or we don't deal with internal politics. So I, I pretty much like that as a <laughs> As a as a co-founder, of course, especially working for bigger companies in the past, so so that's that's a good thing being a, being a small company. But for the most of the potential customers or the existing customers, it's more like the opposite, especially in the research setting. If you're working with uh, universities and so on, and I think it can be a bit frustrating at times when you see that good ideas and projects are not realized because of some internal restrictions uh, or politics. 
sometimes just because of very long internal processes where it actually might be difficult to keep up the motivation for, for everyone involved. So I think most of the small companies know that. People have apologized to us more than once uh, for taking so, so long. And you have to deal with that. But I think it's also an opportunity because from our experience, being flexible and let's let's name it customer-oriented is a great advantage and a big plus compared to others. Um, as a small company, you have to be very flexible. And I would say you are also expected to be. And that's that's sometimes a challenge and often, often an, an advantage, um, I guess. To go to the core of that question, I mean, obviously, there are the politics, there are the slowness of, of larger companies. But do you think that ANSPs and airports should basically take more chances on smaller companies? We often see call for tenders for things that smaller companies could do, but they require like five references in the last six months to put that a bit to an extreme. And there are this kind of obstacles. So do you think smaller company would deserve a fairer chance from bigger um, customers? There are good reasons for for especially NSPs or other companies within the the industry to have a look at those uh, smaller companies. And I think the the topics I I mentioned or the the things I mentioned are good examples for the advantages working with smaller companies. I think they are likely faster, less less expensive, of course, and more motivated. Uh, because from our personal perspective, we also do projects because we really like what we do. Of course, we like to generate revenue, but it's not the only reason. We don't have to satisfy internal goals, um, but we like to be part of something interesting, which has a result, has a real result. And this goes for most of the smaller companies I know of. They like to deliver results and solve problems. And this is a great opportunity, I think, to give or a reason um, to give the, the smaller companies a, a try. But on the other hand, I can understand the, the concerns of the well-known bigger players in the industry. I think the smaller the company, the more it is about the people involved. And of course, they should have a closer look at, at the people involved in, in the companies. And maybe it's a fit. You have to work closely together. Maybe it's not a fit. This is something where you should have a closer look when, when thinking about that. But the the barriers you you mentioned yeah they in, most of the time they just make it not possible make it impossible to even get get in touch and this is something i would love to see um, getting changed totally agree with that i mean that that's something we see in in our job each and every day so thank you for that and for the openness and uh, julian there is no way you can leave today without answering our final question what changes do you see for, for ATM surveillance and, and ATM in general for the next five years and also for the next 50 years? To be fair, I, I expected this question, so I had some time to think about it. And uh, it was an interesting journey for me. So thanks for, for the inspiration. It was interesting to, to have a deep thought on that. Well, there's a huge difference between the situation in five years and 50 years, of course. Uh, we know that processes in aviation, yeah, they take some time. And there's no quick transformation, which is also a good thing for the most part, because the main reason why aviation is so safe is, I guess, one of the reasons is that we are working with proven systems. Um, we don't just try something before we know that's a good idea and it's proven to be reliable. So, for example, I think that still in 50 years, we will still have human pilots, for example. So I don't believe the stories of 
um, having having just robots and computer systems. Let me start with with the five years perspective. I would say, speaking of surveillance, we will have a better ADSB integration. Um, looking at the United States, for example, there there's several steps ahead. Um, looking at general aviation, for example, they have the the, the ADSB equipage as a mandatory thing to have. And I think we will see more and more smaller aircraft being equipped with ADSB transponders, which is a good thing also for, for safety. I'd say that we will have less terrestrial navigation aids. Flying myself, when I look at the charts every year, every year I see I see like NDBs disappearing, for example, or uh, VURs. Uh, they're so expensive to maintain. And we see that there are, whether or not absolutely necessary, they are being dismantled or shut down. And I think this, this process will, will continue the next years. Yeah, the third thing that came to my mind is the, the, this whole topic of drones, of commercial drones, UAVs. We see that this topic is, is really interesting because we are getting asked about drone surveillance actually all the time. And uh, there isn't any strict standard yet, like a like a strategy how to integrate uh, the drones safely into our existing procedures, but the pressure is on. And yeah, I'm quite confident that within the next five years, there will be some kind of strategy to, yeah, to how to, how to actually deal with this kind of, of drone operations and yeah, these new members of, of the aviation world. The, the long distance outlook. And when I look at the, the longer uh, distance outlook for, 15, 50 years from now, I will be in my, my mid to late 80s then, and I will probably laugh at my statements from today. But I would see that artificial intelligence will play will play a bigger role in, in ATM. And I believe that we won't have the classical air traffic controller anymore. I would say we could exchange air traffic controller with air traffic manager, who is AI supported because reducing the human factor will, of course, be important to address the, the increasing traffic while maintaining safety. And I, AI will, will play a big role, I think, when it's proven, when we have more experience with it. And it's going to be an interesting time. And I cannot imagine having, for example, AM voice communication as a primary channel for air traffic control. Maybe we, we will have a few more guard frequencies and that will be it. So data link has to be the future. And um, I could also imagine that we see more space-based systems for, for data exchange. Another topic that came to my mind is integration of, let's say, new space operations, because we see that more and more companies are building launching platforms and like to have some some kind of access to to space but we we'll have we we'll, we'll yet have to integrate space traffic into air traffic and as of now i don't know about any system protocol or strategy on how to integrate spaceships or carrier systems into our existing atc systems or the ATM in, in general. So if you have space operations on a regular basis in a dense airspace, for example, in Europe, uh, you will have to find a solution on how to enable this kind of operation without closing down or restricting huge areas for the for the general air traffic. Yeah, I can I can imagine this being a this being a, the big issue in, in the future, but not for the next five years. Julian, thank you very much for being our guest today. Uh, once more, your company is Skysquitter. Your website is skysquitter.com. 
and we will put link to your LinkedIn profile as well to the website in the episode notes. So if any listener wants to know more and, and get in touch with you, they know how to do that. Thank you very much. Thank you, Russell. And yeah, we're looking forward to, to any kind of discussion and new contacts. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to Radar Contact. Visit foxatm.com or your favorite podcast platform for more episodes. Feel free to let us know if you or someone you know would like to share a topic with the air traffic management community. Frequency change is approved. Music